sure we're willing to do our best if the Lord will help us to recover tonight. Now, the reason why I've done that is because the events that are recorded uh, in Galatians, the end of Galatians 1, and particularly in Galatians chapter 2, are given to us in the book of Acts chapter 15. We read uh, that chapter last week, and so the reason I've done this is that way you can have your Bible open the book of Acts in front of you and still have the Galatians scripture beside you, because I want you to be able to see those side by side. So that's why I've done that. Uh, of course, you can, uh, if you happen to have a copy of the scripture in Acts we're going to read, I guess you can do it the other way around if you wanted to, but I doubt anybody came that prepared. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll get started. Uh, let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that you've given us. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that we can have confidence that it is infallible, it is true, it is perfect. Lord, help us to come before you with the reverence tonight that you deserve. And Lord, help us just to apply through the submission to the Holy Spirit the teachings of your word. We love you, Father, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be opening to Galatians chapter number one. I did. Did you only get one, Brother Bob? Well, you all have a booklet, I think, but if you didn't, I'm going to send it your way. Don't have a book either. Nary a book one, huh? chapter number one, of course, you may have that right in front of you, uh, and we'll be in Acts 15 here in just a moment, but you can turn there as well in your Bible if you'd like uh, as we begin. I'd like to read the entire chapter of uh, the first chapter of the book of Galatians. I'd like to say a real quick word uh, just in review about what we talked about last week. Now it begins, uh, verse number one, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia. Now, we believe our Bible is inspired, don't we? It says, churches of Galatia. So that tells me it's not just one church that Paul is writing to, but multiple churches. He says, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. There's Paul using those new greetings. Uh, grace is typically the Greek greeting that he would use, and peace would be the Hebrew greeting when he was writing to uh, Jews, peace being shalom. You're probably familiar with hearing Jews say that, or maybe in popular culture somewhere. He says, uh, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you in the grace of Christ under another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, then that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Now let me just pause there and say by way of review that last week we read Acts 13, 14, and most of Acts chapter 15 in our Bible study. We did that because it gives us a historical context for the occasion that Paul was writing this. Uh, Paul's first missionary journey, he left out from Antioch and Bethsaida, uh, went to uh, Paphos and preached in a couple cities in that little island of Paphos, and then went north of there and came to Perga and uh, Pamphylia. And that is, of course, modern-day Turkey right there on the coast. From there, he went north and went to 
seen that in this apostolic age, uh, that Jerusalem and the opinion of those at Jerusalem, uh, them being apostles, a good number of them, carried a lot of weight with these churches. So Paul is sent out of Antioch of Syria, goes on his first missionary journey, and he winds up in Antioch of Poseidon. Uh, from there, he goes to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derby, then turns back around and goes back through these cities, establishing those churches and appointing elders, which of course is a New Testament word for pastors, uh, goes back through appointing men to pastor these churches. Now you say, well, preacher, why does that mean anything to me? Because if you look on modern day maps, or when I say modern day, modern day is Turkey, uh, but uh, maps for many, many hundreds of years showed that these four cities were outside of the province of Galatia. And when those maps were made, they were outside of the province of Galatia. But we've come to understand that before 170 AD, when uh, Galatia was a larger Roman province, that this southern area of Galatia, uh, or this southern area was encompassing Galatia. And uh, one writer put it this way, it's kind of like if you said, I'm going to New York. Well, which New York are you going to? Are you going to New York or are you going to New York, New York? You understand what I mean? If you go to New York City, you're also going to New York State. But you can go to New York State and not be going to New York City. Well, Galatia was a, a broader province, and then there was a uh, city called Galatia within that. Well, this broader province is who Paul is writing to. And at that time, when Paul wrote the letter to the churches of Galatia, it encompassed these four churches. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? The reason is this. If those four uh, cities and the churches within those cities are not the churches of Galatia, then we do not know who the churches of Galatia are. Now you say, well, do we have to know? No, I don't suppose we have to know. But it certainly unlocks to us many of the truths found in the book of Galatians to understand that these four cities and the churches within those cities are the ones who Paul is writing. And the reason is because Paul goes in chapters 13 and 14, he preaches the same message he preached everywhere, salvation by grace, plus nothing, minus nothing. He preached salvation apart from any works to try to merit it, to try to gain any favor with God, uh, a pure message of faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, the Bible tells us in chapter 15 uh, of the book of Acts that after this, certain went out from Jerusalem, came into Antioch of Syria, and they claimed to be from Peter and James and John. We find out in uh, chapter 15, we'll talk about in a moment, that they were not from Peter, James, and John. But they claimed that there was two things that must be added to the salvation experience of the believers. One was that a person must be circumcised to be saved. Now, most of us, we know what circumcision is. We're familiar with that custom. Uh, today, we do it all the time. For the most part, it's a pretty Western thing uh, for uh, health reasons as well as, I'm sure, the symbolism, too. Uh, but it was a picture of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Uh, but we understand that it wasn't that act of circumcision that gained Abraham in favor with God because the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. This was merely a symbolism of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and with his seed after him that they were to be a separate people. 
stone or iron, and that's the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. So you'll find iron in your scripture. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, you say, well, what does this have to do? What does irony have to do? This is the irony. There is a group today posing as preaching a short gospel that will tell you that you can fall from grace. What they mean by that is they mean that if you do not continue to abide according to the tenets of the Word of God, that that all of a sudden renders your salvation null and void and that you lose your salvation. Uh, this is common belief really in, in a whole bunch of uh, denominational uh, areas, but particularly in the charismatic movement amongst Pentecostal, Church of Christ, Church of God, uh, they, and that's usually coupled with water baptism as well. Now you say, what's the irony? The irony is the very book that they get that terminology from, falling from grace, is the book of Galatians. Galatians is the great treaty that God gives us to show us that we cannot uh, finish in the flesh what's been begun in the spirit. We cannot accomplish by works that which uh, has begun by faith. And so, of course, God has a sense of irony. We'll get to that a little bit later on. So that's the background. Paul is writing to these churches because we believe that when Paul and Barnabas ran them out of Antioch of Syria, they probably moved northwest into these churches and began to persecute them with this same teaching of legalism. Now let me give you a basic working definition of legalism. And uh, this is not by any means exhaustive or comprehensive, but legalism is the belief that a man's effort or works can merit favor with God. I've heard people all the time throw things around. If you believe in, uh, you know, dress standards, or if you believe that you ought to live separate, they say, you're a legalist. Well, no, that's not legalism. It's not legalism to believe that God has called us to come out from among them and be separate. It's not legalism to believe that God has called us to be a peculiar people and zealous of good works. Uh, legalism is when we claim that we can do anything uh, to make ourselves more saved or more a child of God or in better standing than the finished work of Christ on Calvary can. That's legalism. So this is what Paul is combating. And so he writes to these churches and he says this, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you in the grace of Christ unto another gospel. He says another gospel and then he goes on to say in verse 7, which is not another. Now that seems like a contradiction, but we know there's no contradictions in the Word of God, so if we use our uh, little gray cells up here a little bit, we can understand that what Paul is saying is this, uh, they claim that it's another gospel, and it's certainly an a different gospel from the gospel that's been given to you, but by no stretch of the imagination is it a gospel that is either good news, which is the very definition, the meaning of the word gospel, nor is it a message that can save and redeem and sanctify you. Thank you. 
saying if a man believes another gospel, he's going to be accursed. Well, let me say that I believe that. I believe that if a man rejects the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, that, uh, that he'll suffer damnation and, and eternal hell forever. I do believe that. But I don't believe that's what Paul's saying here. Because Paul doesn't say he's going to be accursed. Paul gives it as an admonition. He says, let him be accursed. This same language is used. It's transliterated for us in the book of, uh, I believe it's 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, when it says uh, that they would be anathema. That literally means let the judgment of God be pronounced upon them. What Paul's saying here is this. When man preaches any gospel other than the gospel of grace, uh, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, any other gospel, then you count him as an accursed person. You separate yourself away from him. Don't identify yourself with him. We talked a little bit last week. That doesn't mean if you've got a lost loved one or somebody depending their church membership to get into heaven. That don't mean you need to unfriend them on Facebook and delete their phone number and hide from them when they come to your house. But what it means is this. You don't need to ever let them believe that you're in agreement on the matter of salvation. Let me tell you what we're guilty of sometimes. We're guilty of asking people, well, do you believe uh, in Jesus? And they say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And we're scared to witness to them, so we back away and say, okay, we're in agreement. When we've not really investigated or asked anything about that. Now, I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of people that say they believe in Jesus. What they mean is they believe in him like Santa Claus. They believe in him like the Easter Bunny. They believe that he existed. They believe in him in a, like a historical figure. They believe in him like they believe in Napoleon Bonaparte. But they have never put their faith in him and his finished work to forgive and redeem and save them from their sins. And what Paul is saying is this. Let there be a barrier. Let there be a separation. I believe in ecclesiastical separation. Now you say, well, what does that mean? That means that the church ought to maintain doctrinal purity. And that means that the church ought not yoke up with anyone that is preaching doctrinal impurity. And that's biblical. That's what Paul's saying here. Let him be cursed. He's writing to individuals, yes, but he's also writing to churches. And what he's saying is this. If anybody preaches any other gospel, he's saying you don't bid him Godspeed. You don't shake hands with him and pretend like you're in agreement. You don't have to hate him. You don't have to be mean to him. You don't have to be rude to him. You don't have to pick a fight with him every time you see him. But don't leave him under the impression that you're in agreement with him over it. Because the difference between salvation by grace and salvation by works is the difference between night and day, and it's the difference between heaven and hell. So Paul is saying, let him be accursed. And as we've already mentioned last week, and uh, some of these things I may have mentioned last week for joining us for the first time this week, and I say we mentioned it last week, I'm not picking on you, that's what we mentioned it last week. Uh, the book of Galatians, you can divide it a number of different ways. And outlines are only as good in as much as they help you understand something. And one of the outlines that I like, because it gives us a pretty basic and easy understanding of the outline of the book, is this. The first two chapters of the book of Galatians are mainly personal. Paul is dealing, and he gives a personal salutation, a personal warning, and he gives a personal history that we're going to get into here in just a moment. And then the next two chapters are mainly doctrinal, or we might say theological. In other words, in chapters 3 and 4, Paul goes through explaining why salvation is by faith, has always been by faith, and can be by nothing other than faith. And then the last two chapters are practical. He deals with the walk of the believer uh, in the Holy Spirit of God, and how that we cannot be perfected by works if we've been saved by the Spirit. It's impossible. So let's just jump into this. Look at verse number 10. Paul begins to give a personal history of himself. Now one of the reasons Paul 
all did this is coupled with the first two accusations, the main doctrinal heresies, that you must be circumcised to be saved, and that you must maintain the uh, Old Testament law to keep salvation. There was a third accusation they leveled, but it was not in, uh, in a doctrinal sense, it was against Paul. And they basically said this, they were coming out from Peter and James and John, or they said they were, and they said, listen, this Paul fella, he's not preaching what Peter and James and John do. He hasn't even seen Jesus in the flesh. He didn't even walk with Jesus in his earthly ministry. They're saying, we're coming by a greater authority than Paul is coming by, because we're coming by the apostles, and the apostles have greater authority than Paul does, because they walk with Jesus in the flesh. Can I just pause for a moment and say this? Uh, you know, there's a part of me that wishes I could have seen the, the 5,000 fed. I would have loved to have seen the blind man by the pool of Siloam. I'm not saying there's not a part of me that wouldn't have longed to see God do those things. But do you know that you and I have a greater faith today than the apostles had? And Christ said that. He said that, uh, blessed are those which believe on me through your word, because they have not seen and they have believed. And so Paul is basically saying the same thing throughout this. He says in verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Now, I want to say here that the context of this, what Paul's saying is this, and you know, maybe I'm, I'm probably rebellious. Adults are more rebellious than teenagers by far. And if you don't believe that, next time you see somebody pulled over on the side of the road by police, uh, just slow down and look at the look on their face while they're getting that ticket wrote to them. Adults are just as rebellious. And there's probably a rebellious side of me that this appeals to, but I kind of think that what Paul's saying is this. I kind of think that Paul is saying, I don't care what you say that James and Peter and John have said. I don't care what these Judaizers uh, say. You know, they would say, well, this Paul fella, he's going to be in trouble in Jerusalem. When they find out about it in Jerusalem, he's going to be in trouble. And what Paul is saying is, I couldn't give a rip what any other man thinks. I'm not here to persuade men. I'm here to please God. I'm here to please the Lord. Let me tell you this. As a, as a believer, the greatest liberty and freedom you'll ever gain is when you learn to live for an audience of one. When you learn to live with only God's pleasure in your mind. When you get to the place, and I'm not saying we need to go around with a chip on our shoulder. We talked about it last night in church. Uh, we're to uh, silence ignorant men through our good works. Not as free using our liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. But as the servants of God, that doesn't mean we walk around with this attitude. Well, I don't care what nobody thinks. I've heard people say, you know, you see the, the kids at the, at the mall, if you go to the mall, and uh, they're always outside the movie theater entrance, and there they lurk in the darkness. You know who I'm talking about. Their hair is all sorts of different colors. They, they, they've got more piercings than you think could, could you know, they'll never be able to fly. They couldn't make it through a metal detector. And they're dressed in all these heinous clothes. And every one of them will say this. Every one of them will say, I don't care what anybody thinks. And every one of them will be dressed exactly like their friend next to them. Adults do the same thing. Adults, I've heard so many adults say, well, I don't care what anyone says. I have liberty in Jesus Christ. And then they let the world dictate the way that they live. Isn't that interesting? Well, I don't care what anyone thinks. But I've got to be in vogue with what the world expects of me. Let me tell you what the belief of the Christian ought to be. I, I, I care what people think in as much as it would bring shame to the name of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, my major concern is that God be pleased with my life. That's what Paul is saying here. He makes an interesting statement. 
that we need to understand, and that is this, that you can't please men and be the servant of Christ. What the world expects of you will be mutually exclusive of what God expects of you. If you're going to please men and please the world, you'll have to do it at the expense of God. You cannot have it both ways. I was just reading yesterday about Moses leading the children of Israel and trying to lead them into the promised land. And Acts chapter 7 says this, but they turned their hearts back again to Egypt. And let me say this, you can't drag someone's body into Canaan whose heart is still in Egypt. There's a choice we must make. So Paul says, I can care less what these people think. And he says in verse 11, but I certify to you, or I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not after man. Paul's saying, I didn't receive it from men. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is important, you understand. There's three, uh, there's, or, I'm sorry, there are four terminologies that we need to understand concerning our Bible. One of them is the word inspiration, and another is the word preservation, and, or excuse me, three of them, and another is the word revelation. Now, you say, why is that important? Because revelation denotes, if you're revealing something, you're not creating something. You understand what I mean? If you're revealing something, you are not creating something, but rather unveiling something that already exists. Inspiration is the means by which God gave his word. But that act of inspiration was an act of revelation. The word of God did not begin when men pinned it down. It has always existed in the eternal heart of God and in the person of his dear son. It was merely revealed to men through the mode of inspiration, and it's been carried to us today through the mode of preservation, and what's been inspired has been preserved perfectly and without error. I heard one preacher put it this way. He said, if I can green beans uh, one month, when I open them up six months later, if they're not green beans, they weren't preserved. Amen? So if something's preserved, it means maintains that same integrity. You say, what does that have to do with my Bible? I believe as I hold this King James Bible in my hand, that what I have is just as good, just as valid, just as inspired, not because the translators were inspired, but because the inspiration has been preserved without error and perfectly, I believe what I'm holding here is just as good as what uh, Paul would pin down on the skins of animals. Now, I'm not against Hebrew and Greek. If you want to study Hebrew and Greek, uh, you know, more power to you. I, I have trouble with English, amen. But uh, I believe that God has uh, inspired and preserved his word. But Paul says this gospel that I received, I received it by revelation. And when did this happen? It says in verse number uh, 13, well, we'll get to it here in a moment, but look down at uh, verse number 16. The Bible says, Reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen immediately. I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem uh, to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. Now, if this had been according to modern denominational expectations, uh, somebody would have had Paul fill out a little green card. They would have brought him before Peter. They would have questioned him. Uh, they would have asked everything about his history. They would have asked about what had taken place in his life. They would have given him a questionnaire to fill out. They would have had him wait six, eight months to see whether he was legit, and then they would have sent him out. Paul says, that's not how it happened with me. Paul says, after I got saved, I went out into the deserts of Arabia, and God gave by revelation the gospel of Jesus Christ to me. Now, why is this important that Paul is saying this? Because the claim of the Judaizers was that the message of Paul was 
there's going to be somebody greater than me who's going to have to answer to for that. Because this gospel didn't come by me, from me, in me. It came from God. It's his gospel. It's his heaven. I reckon we ought to know how to get into his heaven, being it's his heaven. It's his son. It's his Bible. It's his church. It's his word. And so we need to understand, there'll be some that'll say, oh, preacher, you're making uh, mountains out of molehills. But I would have you know that if these are molehills, God has the power to make them into mountains, and they are mountains, because God said, let them be accursed. This is a big deal to God. Do we understand that? It's a big deal to God that we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just to a preacher or to a church. He says in verse number 13, For ye have heard of my conversation in time past, in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Now this, I, you know, I, I kind of laugh when I, when I read this, and this is why. Because Paul says this, ye have heard, ye have heard. You know where they had heard it? They had heard it from two places. One from just a general terror that would have struck people in the name of Saul of Tarsus. But you have to remember, the very first exposure they had to New Testament Christianity was by Paul. So if they heard this, they heard this after Paul. Now where did they hear it from? And I can kind of see these Judaizers coming in and saying, well, you know that Paul fella, he was the best Pharisee of us all. You know that Paul fella, he kept the law better than any of us. And I can see him saying this, that Paul fella made more money off of what we believe than any of us have. Paul says that's exactly right. I absolutely did. He says I persecuted the church of God. I wasted it. He describes it in other places as laying waste to it. The Bible says that when God saved Paul, that Christ made this revelation to him. He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? That was a revelation of the body of Christ to Paul. Because Paul had never done anything to the uh, earthly ministry of Jesus Christ or Christ in the flesh. But Christ is saying, you persecute my church, you're persecuting me. Paul says, they're absolutely right about who I was. They're absolutely right. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. As touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. As touching zeal, persecuting the church. Paul says that's exactly who Saul of Tarsus was. That's exactly who I was. But there came a day when God, look what it says in verse number, oh, look what it says in verse 15, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. He says there came a day on the Damascus road when God shined a light in my eyes unlike any light I'd ever seen. I heard a voice from heaven like I had never heard. I felt the power that knocked me from my righteousness like I had never felt. Paul says that's who Saul Tarsus was. The Saul of Tarsus died on a Damascus road. And up from the ashes came Paul the Apostle. God showed me who and what I was. And those things that I love, that I cherish, those good works, that righteousness, that rabbinical tradition. He says, those things I counted but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but having his righteousness. Paul says, I'm exactly who they say I was. And I know more about the Jews' religion than they do. And I know more about what the law can do. 
says, and I found them to be nothing but a dark pit and a dead end and a hopeless future. He says, yes, you've heard these things. But it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. I kind of think Paul is using a plurality of language there. I think he is saying that it's God that brought me into this world. But I think also when he speaks of his mother's womb, he's speaking of that time on the Damascus Road when God uh, separated, severed, did some surgery on Paul's faith and separated that faith in his flesh and his ancestry. Separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. Now there's, I think, a twofold understanding of that. One is this. In Paul, God showed him Jesus Christ. But I think that, that, that another understanding is here. Paul is speaking of his apostleship because he's saying, in me, Paul has showed, God has showed others his son, Jesus Christ. God has chosen to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. It says, immediately I confer not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. You can find all this in the book of Acts. Not much is said about that trip into Arabia, but you can find uh, the events surrounding it. He says, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. We believe this happened uh, in the book of Acts, and I believe it's chapter number 9 is when it's described, if I'm not mistaken, I could be mistaken, when Barnabas took him to introduce him to the apostles, but none were there, he says. He says, uh, to see Peter and abode with him 15 days, but other of the apostles saw none say, James, the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. He's saying, this is my honest testimony before the God of heaven. This gospel that I have, it's not something that I've received of myself or through others or by man. But this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, given by Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, and for the glory of Jesus Christ. He says that after this, afterwards I came to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only, oh, what a testimony, they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preached the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. Now why is Paul giving all this information? He's meeting head on the accusations leveled against him. And he's saying this, this past that they accuse me of is a true past. But it's a past that the works of the law cannot alter or change or sever. It's a past that the works of the law cannot erase. It's a past that Judaism at its finest, and that's what he said in Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, I was, I, I was a Jew's Jew. <laughs> that's politically correct. I guess on the internet they'll, they'll come put me in shackles. But that's what he's saying. I was a Jew's Jew. And he says, you know what I found with all of that? I found that it couldn't do anything about Saul of Tarsus. Let me tell you something, friend. People begin to depend on the good works from early childhood. It's not just when they go and get baptized at a church having made no profession. It's not just when they put their name on a church roll thinking that will get them to heaven. It's not when they go and partake in the sacraments or have some preacher tell them they're saved when they've never fallen under conviction and called on Christ to save them. No, people begin depending on the good works at a young age. People begin learning how to manipulate and play the system, don't they? I, got, I mean, i got a kid. He ain't big, but I can already tell, amen? He knows. He learned how to say that. It's all downhill now, amen? It's all downhill now. We learn how to, how to gain 
church, a local New Testament church. My name's not on any rolls except maybe the FBI watch list. <laughs> so I, I'm not I'm not trying to battle anything. But when the Presbyterians that believe in Calvinism tell you that except you uh, strive with patience, and if you ever fall away in backsliddenness, you will never saved, they're saying that your works get you to heaven. When the Methodists claim that you must and can attain the sinless sanctification, and you say, well, I know a Methodist, and they don't believe that way. No, that's because most Methodist churches don't talk about that, just as Presbyterians don't talk about that, just as the average Baptist church doesn't talk about what they believe either. I understand there's plenty of people that are members of these churches. Many of them, I'm sure, that have even put their faith in Christ, forgiven and saved them. But the belief system... When they claim that you can be sinlessly sanctified and eradicate your flesh, which encompasses not only Methodism at its core, but also uh, Church of Christ and Church of God and Pentecostals, their claiming is you can you can absolve and eradicate your sin through your good works. They're claiming in salvation other than by works. When the Roman Catholic Church claims that you can be a member of their church and baptize at a young age to do away with original sin, which baptism doesn't do away with any sin. I, I mean, listen, I, I baptize people that they weren't even externally clean when they came out of the water. Amen? I, I mean, your baptism, I, if, if a sinner gets baptized, they go down a dry sinner and come up a wet sinner. Baptismal regeneration is taught nowhere in the Bible. And, and to try to teach it, they've had to take new Bibles and try to take passages out of the Word of God to support baptismal regeneration because of the Roman Catholic history behind uh, many of the new versions. Well, I know this isn't popular, but am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? We're going to get to it here in a moment. But am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? When the Roman Catholic Church tells people that you can be baptized as an infant, you can go through all the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church and maintain a church membership, and that will get you to heaven. Is that not salvation by good works? And even many Baptists that will claim if you don't live up to their standard, it's because you were never really saved. Isn't that salvation by works? I'm getting Baptists along with it. What I'm saying is this. We either believe in salvation by, by grace or we don't. We've got to come to a place because the Bible beckons us to come to a place where we make our mind up about this issue. Paul says, what good works could not do for me? All the good works, they couldn't get rid of Saul of Tarsus. But when I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, he says in verse number 23, that he was persecuted us in times past. Now preach the faith which he once destroyed. He says grace can do what works never could. Grace can do what baptism can. Grace can do what church membership can. Grace can do what living up to Pharisaical standards set by preachers and pastors can. Grace can do what nothing else can do. Grace can save the sinner. And only grace can save the sinner. He begins to account of history. You've got your scripture right there in front of you. Turn to Acts 15 with me. Acts chapter 15. Now that I made everybody mad, I've got to talk about something else. Amen. Some of you are saying, well, my grandmama was a Methodist. Well, I hope your grandmama put her faith in Christ as her Savior. If she did, no matter whether her name was or wasn't on a Methodist role, if her salvation was by faith in Jesus Christ, then not having her name on a Methodist role didn't keep her out of heaven. And having her name on a Methodist 
Methodist Road book didn't keep her out of heaven. And the same thing, you know, I've heard people ask before, so does that mean, uh, so are, are all Catholics unsaved? Uh, I don't know. Probably not. I'm sure there are saved Catholics, just not good Catholics. Because a good Catholic is trusting in their church to get them to heaven. I know a lot of uh, Baptists that aren't saved too. Amen? What I'm saying is this, it has nothing to do with denominational labels. It has to do with salvation by grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, there's the old story that uh, Charles Spurgeon, who uh, got saved when he was 15 years old, he came to his mother, he'd gone out and tried, he was trying to get to a, a certain church where there was a snowstorm, he couldn't get there. And so he stepped into a little Methodist chapel, actually, and the preacher could not make it because of the weather, and so a lay person was preaching. And this preacher was up preaching, and he was preaching, Look unto me, and be ye saved out of the book of Isaiah. And without eloquence, without oratory skill, he just kept saying, Look, look unto me, is the command. Look unto me, just look unto me, and be ye saved. And like a light turned on, a young Charles Spurgeon realized that his good works could not get him to heaven. And he needed only to look to the finished work of Calvary to redeem him from his sins. Galatians chapter 2, and I went up by revelation 
church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. Now, some people believe that when it says this, they declared all things, that's just giving a general synopsis of Paul's actions, saying that in coming to this council of Jerusalem, he declared everything God had done. Others believe, and I sort of lean this way, that what it means is when Paul came to this council, that included three groups, it says in verse number four, received of the church and of the apostles and elders. So received of the congregation at large, those that had walked with Christ during his earthly ministry and could bear testimony to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that that was a requirement of being an apostle, and elders, other folks that have been saved that have become pillars in the church. Uh, most likely when they met, the church met at large, and they heard Paul. Paul began to talk about his first missionary journey, about how he had preached the gospel, how he had seen multitudes that were saved. And then there's a secondary meeting that's not in Acts 15, that is in Galatians chapter 2, where he says, But privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Now what's Paul saying? Paul met with those that were of reputation. Now we know this would have included James and John and Peter, and any other apostles that would have been at Jerusalem at this time. So we have to understand, it didn't take long after Pentecost until the apostles were dispersed and began to go to other places preaching. In Acts chapter 8, we have that spoken to us of Philippi, that he went and was preaching and seeing God do some great and wonderful things. So we do not know exactly why all apostles would have been in Jerusalem, but we know from what will take place here in a moment that Peter, James, and John were there at Jerusalem. And so he says that I had a private conversation with him, lest I should run or had run in vain. Now this is what I believe Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I met with him in private before there would be an opportunity for these Judaizers, some of which were already at Jerusalem and some of which had followed them from Antioch and Syria, uh, before they had an opportunity to say anything, to think what we were about to say, Paul says, I met with them and began to tell them the things that God had done. Now, look at verse number 5 in Acts chapter 15, and look at verse number 4 in Galatians chapter 2. They parallel. He says, But there rose up a certain sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Paul says, And that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Now he says in verse 3, that neither Titus who was with me being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised. Paul says, When I met with them in private and explained to them what God had done and had Titus with me, these that were of reputation, they didn't tell me to circumcise Titus. But then there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees. So you have these Judaizers that stand up and begin to debate this issue. And begin to say that it's needful that they be circumcised to be saved, and that they keep the works of the law if they're going to remain saved. Now here's the problem, though. Here's Titus. Titus is a Greek. He's never been circumcised. Again, at this time, most of the Western world didn't practice circumcision. I mean, it's common in most hospitals that they'll do that now uh, with the parents' consent. But at this time, most of the Western world did not practice circumcision. Titus had never been circumcised. Titus was a Greek. He didn't know the law. I mean, he had been in Galatia. He didn't know anything about ceremonial law. And so here's the problem. And what are the Pharisees saying? They're saying, we need to circumcise Titus, and then the law will be settled. Let me ask you something. How far do we go to get along with folks? That's an important question Christian needs to ask themselves. How far are we willing to go to get along with folks? 
actual music. I, I'm not for trying to to take rock music and put Christian words to it and pass it off as being something separate from the world. But I know preachers that would break fellowship with me if I didn't use the Church of God, Broadman, Red Back Church in I would break fellowship with a man over that. If they want to use the soul-sucking, soul soul-stirring hymns, I'm sorry, in their church, God bless them. It doesn't bother me. I wouldn't break fellowship with them over that. But let me say that there's certain things we're better draw a line about because God draws a line about it. Paul says this in verse number 5 of Galatians chapter 2. To whom he gave, no, gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. They said, let's just circumcise Titus. Get it over with. Paul says, you step towards that boy with an eye, and it'll be coming back at you. That's in the Greek, that's not in the English. Don't you set a foot towards Titus? You have to go through me to do it. Why did Paul do that? Did he do it because it would have killed Titus? Well, no. I got a little boy. He's alive and well, mean as ever. Did he do it because Titus would have just never recovered? No. Did he do it to keep Titus from having his feelings hurt? No. He did it for this reason that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. We need to understand that when we become permissive, we become destructive. You understand that Eli in the Old Testament, Eli was one of the greatest priests that ever lived. Some of you are saying, Eli? The daddy of Hophni and Phineas? Eli? Oh, yes. Eli was a high priest. God had allowed him to be high priest up until he was, I believe, in his 90s. You know that every year on Yom Kippur, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, they would take a rope and they would tie it around his waist. And the high priest's garment would have bells sewn into the bottom of it. Because those that were in uh, the holy place, not the holy of holies, but those that were in the next court, the, the, the general place that the Levitical priest could go into, if they heard the bells stop ringing and the priest stopped moving, they would take and pull that rope and pull the dead body of the high priest out of there. Now, why did they do that? Because if a high priest went into the presence of the Shekinah glory of God and had sin in his heart and life, God would strike him dead. Now, let me ask you this. What does it say about Eli that he lived to such an old age? Decades of going into the presence of God and not having sin in his heart. That's not to say Eli was perfect. I'm not implying that. But I'm merely saying that Eli was a good high priest. And yet it was Eli to whom we can attribute much of the fall of the moral and religious structure of Israel in the day that he reigned. Why? What was Eli's great crime? Eli was not perverted. Eli was not an infidel. Eli was not a pagan. Eli was permissive. He allowed his children to get away with things just as much damage, probably more, through being permissive in our stand and in our doctrine as we can through being downright heretical. At least when we're heretics, most Christians will cast us off and have no fellowship. But when we lead a campaign of permissiveness, we'll take untold scores of people with us. Because the 
mankind is always to be permissive with sin and with bad doctrine. Paul says, I would let him near Titus. Because if I had let them circumcise Titus, it would have sent this message to every Gentile church. Go ahead and just get circumcised. It'll be a lot easier. Go ahead and keep the law. It'll be a lot easier. Go ahead and trust in your works. You might as well. And yet Paul would go on to say in the book of Galatians that Christ took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us, out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Christ came to die for our sins that we might not be under the bondage of the law. Paul says, I wasn't going to let them make an example out of Titus and circumcise him. He says in verse number 6, But of these who seem to be somewhat, I like his language here, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference, added nothing to me. Now there's a twofold understanding of this. You notice I like twofold understandings. One of them is this. I think Paul's saying they didn't help me at all. But I think also what Paul is saying is this. This council didn't change anything of the gospel that I was already preaching. They added nothing to me. Paul says, I didn't go to Jerusalem and get straightened out. He says, I know that these Judaizers are telling you, Paul at this time was probably, it's my belief, he was in Antioch of Syria, nowhere near these churches of Galatia. And they'd received letters saying, oh, you know, Paul, he went down to Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John, they straightened him out. Paul says, no, they didn't straighten anything out, because you don't need to straighten something out that's already perfectly straight and narrow. They didn't straighten me out. They added nothing to my gospel. I received it from the Lord, I received it by revelation. So what did they do? He says, but contrary wise, when they saw that the gospel of uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. In other words, God committed me to go to the Gentiles, Peter to go to the Jews. For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, we know that's another name uh, for Peter, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was for to do. Now, I'm going to let you, because we're running out of time, read the rest of Acts chapter 15 in your own time, but you have the details of what happened. They sent a letter to be taken to these churches, basically say, we want you to abstain from fornication, from things strangled, from what? Don't get, we got five minutes. I'm still going. I just, but, but I can see the finish line, and I know if I keep running like I'm running now, I'm not going to get to it. So we're not, we're not quite done, but uh, that they abstain from fornication, things strangled, and from what? Well, now, what were they saying when they would have these big pagan feasts uh, and things offered unto idols? Excuse me. When they would have these big pagan feasts, oftentimes uh, they would give things from your uh, vain conversation, from traditions, from your 
Father, but with the precious blood of Christ, as the Lamb without blemish and without spot. I just believe the Bible. And you say, well, I've got a John MacArthur book. Well, I'm not going to throw an egg at you. I don't care. But I'm just saying, I disagree with him on, on that fact. You see, the pagan sacrifice was not a blood sacrifice, it was a death sacrifice. And if God could be pleased by death, he'd be pretty pleased. But he'd only be pleased by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. So they would strain the beast, so the blood would still be in them. And oftentimes these pagan rituals would turn into a, an orgy, for lack of a more you know, taxable term. That's what it would become. And so what, what they're saying when they write this letter is, the only thing we ask you to do is take care of the poor, the widows, and stay out of the pagan temples. Saying that's the only thing we ask you to do, and they never said your salvation is based upon it, they just said that's the only thing that this council asks for you to do. And uh, they wrote this letter, and you can find all those details in Acts chapter 15. Uh, but I want to just say a word about these last four verses that you have on your paper, uh, just because I want to touch on them. I thought we'd get more into them, but that's okay. Uh, so Paul is telling this story, and he says, I went to Jerusalem, they had this council, didn't change my mind one bit because what I got. I won't let him circumcise Titus. We sent a letter. We straightened it all out. Everything was fine. So we thought. Paul goes back to Antioch in Syria. And Paul is ministering there with Barnabas. And he says in verse number 11, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I was stood in the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that, certain came from James. He did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them, which was the circumcision. Now, what happened? Peter comes to Antioch. He's having a good old time. They're sitting around, you know, I mean, they're, they're sitting around eating, eating bacon on their salads and, you know, bacon bits and having bacon for breakfast. And they're having a good time because he's been delivered from the Old Testament law. And he is eating with the Gentiles and he's having no problem. But then all of a sudden, these Judaizers, they show back up. And by the way, salvation by works is going to be one of the main themes and tenets of the one world empire of the Antichrist. Let's not talk about Jesus. Let's just all do good things for each other, and that will be enough. Salvation by works and legalism will always rear its ugly head, always. And so Paul says, I thought everything was okay. And me and Peter were there, and we were having a good time. You know, we're eating pigs in a blanket, and we're enjoying ourselves. And he says, then these show up from Antioch, or from, uh, from Jerusalem, and they're from James. And all of a sudden, Peter gets skittish. Peter withdrew himself from the Gentiles and begins to associate only with the Jews. It is forbidden in the Old Testament for a Jew to associate with the Gentiles. Peter was placing himself back under the yoke of bondage. So you understand that the first story that Paul tells is dealing with the idea of circumcision being necessary for salvation. The second story he tells deals with the idea of maintaining the works of the law as either proof or as uh, maintenance for our salvation. Paul says, I would still into the face because he's been blamed. In fact, he says, and the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. What is dissimulation? It's a fancy Bible word, and we need to learn it. I'm not discarding it. But the word we use in common language today is the word hypocrisy. Paul says, all of a sudden, the Jews show up, Peter turns into a hypocrite. And his hypocrisy made hypocrites out of Barnabas as well. Barnabas at one time was the chief one between Barnabas and Paul. Paul was kind of taking the mantle. Barnabas was the one that went and got him and found him in Tarsus and brought him to, 
them all. Paul would later on go on to say, him that, uh, that uh, sinneth among you, or him that hath sin among you, he said, rebuke openly before all that others may fear. Paul says, yeah, I call his name before them all. But he said this, if thou be a Jew, with a sect of men of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? He says this, Gentiles were good enough when the Jews weren't here. But now all of a sudden you want these Gentiles live like the Jews do when the Jews show up. What's he saying? He's saying this, be consistent in your message. Be consistent in your message. I'm all for standards, but my standards don't make me a child of God. I'm all for living right. And I believe a child of God will either live right or live under chastisement, one of the two. Well, that doesn't make me a child of God. What makes me a child of God is the fact that I've been born into the family of God by the Spirit of God. So in closing, why is Paul saying all this? He's saying all this because he wants them to understand his message is consistent. They come and they said, oh, you know, that, that Paul fella, he's not the same person amongst you that he 